Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, we've got a return visitor this time. Absolutely, John. You know, it's that time of year, so I figured we would either get Senator Manchin, maybe Dr. Omicron, or maybe Santa Claus. But uh, you had something else in mind, and so we're going to have somebody who's authored his fourth or fifth book. It's called Risk, A User's Guide. Who is it, John? General Stanley McChrystal, Yale professor, advisor to companies, and newly minted risk expert. Welcome, Stan. Oh, thanks, John. I really appreciate the chance to be back with you. So, Stan, tell us a little bit about why you chose risk as a topic and why now? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I spent a lifetime with people trying to teach me how to manage or deal with risk. Then I got a chance to practice whether I was good at it, and I had issues like everybody seems to. And then I looked at the the big events in our lives, like the 9-11 attack or the financial crisis of 2008, or more recently, the arrival of COVID-19. In every case, we had risks that were knowable to a degree, not the specifics or the timing or the the specific details of it, but the reality is, you know threats like that are going to come on a routine basis. And yet, in each case, I would argue, we dropped the ball. We didn't do very well. And so the question is, if we're so good at risk, why don't we do very well with it? So I wanted at this point in my life to study that, figure out what what I had been missing in life about risk and what I think we as a society get wrong. You know, you start off the book and you talk about risk, which is a you know short one of those four letter words that people are allowed to say and they generally know what it means. But I mean, what do you mean exactly by risk anyway? It's it's not people just assume you know what it is, but it makes sense to define terms. Well, it's interesting. You know, typically when you think of risk, you think of something bad happening. And often the intersection between the probability of something happening and the consequences of it. So if I climb up on my roof, what's the probability I'll fall off? If I fall off, what are the consequences? Will I get hurt? But I but I've evolved how I think about risk now. Now I think about it almost as a mathematical equation. And John can smile when he hears me and math connected. But the reality is, I think it is the function of threats that come times our vulnerability. So it's really these threats over which we have very little control and then our vulnerability to them. And the resulting product is risk. So for example, if you have no threats, you live in a perfect world, you don't have much to worry about because anything times zero is zero. But most of us don't live in that world. And so you say, well, what can I control? What about my vulnerability to these threats? Well, you suddenly realize if I can reduce my vulnerability, that's going to reduce that product risk. And so the real lever we have is to decrease what risk can do to us is our vulnerabilities. And so when you, when you, when you go down that road, though, Stan, most companies, whether it's a bank or a or a, a healthcare company, or nonprofits, or government, they tend to they tend to get into the prediction business. And you know, I I remember, and this won't be a surprise to you that that you know, at one point I was working a little bit as a reservist in intelligence uh, for General Odom, and I was re- it was remarkable that even within the intelligence community. Um, across the different aspects of the intelligence. We were trying to predict the number of tanks in 
uh, uh, that could kind of flow into Northwest Germany at the time, which seemed like an archaic thought a few years ago, starting to start to worry as you think about the Ukraine. And yet people with the same amount of information would spend a tremendous amount of time disagreeing over what would seem to be simple things. But at the end of the day, my great fear, you know, as a graduate student is, is perhaps none of them are right. And, and does it matter? I mean, it was, it was, it was the prediction business, even in the, even on the, even in intelligence was exceptionally hard. It is. It's really a fool's errand because the reality is if you ever figure it out, a, a knowing foe will change their plan if they, if they understand that you've done that. And then the difference between 2,500 and 3,000 tanks coming across the border doesn't matter as much as to whether you can deal with tanks when they come into your sector. And so the real question is companies, for example, CEOs are often asked, what are the greatest risks to your corporation? And they will typically list a number of external factors. And then when we look at failed companies, most of the time, something internal is what causes them real problems, dysfunction or things like that. And so I think it's easier to look at external risks, to think of what's over the horizon or around the corner, to sort of fixate on those and decide if you can duck when it comes or if you can parry it. When in reality, if we can look at how resilient our organizations are, how durable they are to whatever risk comes, because we'll invariably get the prediction wrong. So we better be ready for the sucker punch that hits us from a different direction. And yet we tend not to focus on that because it's hard work. You know, to me, in reading the book, the, the fundamental thing is what you just, just touched on, looking at risk from an internal standpoint as opposed to um, external. Are there a lot of people that, that, that kind of have this in a way and they just haven't, they've internalized it, but they haven't really laid it out? Or are most people thinking about risk in the wrong way? I think there's a little bit of both, David. I think in reality, most organizations tend to think about it in the wrong way. If you if you look at the risk analysis, they will go through all those external risks and spend all the, the calories that John mentioned that the intelligence community used to spend to worry about it. Because if you go back to how strong the organization is, it really gets down to some basics. You know, in the book, we analogize to the human immune system. And I learned about the human immune system when a Yale immunologist came to my office one day a few years ago and said, you know, the human immune system is like counterinsurgency. And I looked at her and I said, well, I know nothing about the human immune system. What do you know about counterinsurgency? And she said, well, not very much. Turned out she actually had a pretty good appreciation. But we did a project together to compare them. And what we found was a weakened human body when the human immune system is weakened is like a nation that is weakened and therefore vulnerable to an insurgency. And so when we thought about risk, what we really said was, you are in possession of this miracle system, our body that detects the threats that come at us, assesses each threat, responds to it, and then learns from it. And every day we get about 10,000 assaults on our body, our health by microorganisms any one of which could make us sick or kill us. But we don't get up in the morning and worry about our human immune system. It's only when it's not functioning that suddenly it's front and center in our minds. And yet, if we think about an organization, we have the equivalent, a risk immune system that does the same thing for an entire spectrum of risks. And it's our ability to do that, detect, assess, respond, and learn that proves so key. 
So Stan, when you, you when you talk about it, I love that example in the book and that that you know that HIV doesn't kill, it just lowers all the barriers against all those things that can kill you. Um, when you briefed people on in the in the in the defense national security environment, um, you don't really say whether they embraced uh, that analysis. I thought it was a really interesting one. What happened when you briefed people on the biology and the virology that they didn't know? It's interesting. You get kind of a head nod and you don't get people suddenly going, yeah, that's the holy grail. Often it's kind of, yeah, we knew that. And the answer is we all kind of know this intuitively. You know, in my early days of special operations, we would do these very elegant plans. And you've seen their execution in movies where commandos land and everybody goes to exactly the right part and they throw hand grenades through uh, windows and they everything is just perfectly choreographed. I planned hundreds of those operations, but I never went on one that executed like that. You know, when you get on the ground, it's a little bit messier than that. And of course, all the things you don't want to have happen, happen, but never the things that you planned for to go wrong actually went wrong. It was something completely different. And so what we learned over time was to build plans that were less ambitious in their precision. They were almost based on the idea we are going to mentally prepare operators who are good in the unexpected moment and create these elastic relationships between the teams so that they just, we would call it, do audibles off the line and put them into those situations. And then they are mentally prepared for that. In fact, they're looking forward to that situation because they'll be advantaged over the enemy if they go in with that mindset. And I think that's where organizations have to be. Assume that your plan will be incorrect. Assume that the things you didn't plan for will happen or couldn't even conceive will happen and make yourself as able to deal with that as possible. So when you think about that risk immune system and the HIV analogy, I, I kind of worry that as a country, we're letting some of our defenses down and we're, we're in the, we're we're sort of at risk for things infecting us. I don't know whether you agree with that analogy, but it it, it immediately comes to bear at a time when kind of democracy is shredding, and so is a sense of a common narrative. I do agree with that, um, and a sort of preamble to that: the ten components that we identified for a risk immune system involve communication, the ability to communicate effectively in the organization, a clear narrative that you can align on, the ability to get things done, overcome inertia, adaptability, leadership, sort of basic traits that we think are good for organizations and and nations are just big organizations. If you think about what is vulnerable about our nation now is I would argue that we've become brittle. The things that we do routinely that are involved in the execution of a vibrant democracy, the give and take, the open discourse, the ability to identify good candidates and get them elected in free and fair elections, all of those things are under stress. And I would describe them as more brittle or fragile than before. If we are trying to simply get the the, uh, normal processes of our democracy to work, we are vulnerable to those external things. An external actor, for example, a move around the world of Vladimir Putin entering Ukraine, a China going after Taiwan, any number of scenarios. 
because we're less effective to perform the basics well. And when you're, when you're weakened there, you're going to be weakened externally. The thing to remember is how vulnerable we all are to disinformation. Typically, we, we describe that's a problem for people who aren't quite as smart or as discerning as we are. But if we look statistically and historically, the reality is if you are in that kind of environment, the vast majority of people, even educated, thoughtful people, get swept along in the current. And I'd go back starting with tobacco in America. In the 1940s and 50s, it became medically uh, proven that tobacco was bad for you, particularly cancer. And yet the American Tobacco Institute instituted a very subtle campaign in which they didn't say tobacco wasn't harmful. They said tobacco may be harmful. And what they did was they left enough daylight for someone who wanted to smoke because it was pleasurable and addictive to say, well, it may not really be harmful. And you rationalize in yourself that 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 could be the case. I would argue that we're probably in that same place right now with social media. Social media, we intuitively know, in fact, we know with studies too, that it's extraordinarily dangerous and used incorrectly. The impact it can have on people can be very, very damaging. And yet it's convenient. It's kind of fun. It's addictive. And so we are rationalizing that we really, yeah, it may be a problem, but but we can master this. And we haven't yet proven that, that that part is true, that we, in fact, can master it. And you go, of course, to a, a more extreme uh, example of Adolf Hitler, where he was like a f- tuning fork. He could hit the passions of the people. And yet he's not the first or the last person who's been able to do it. The difference is, although he used technology like radio and film, and he used it masterfully, now we've, we've reduced the cost of that kind of communication almost to zero. So any person with that desire and some ability at it can leverage modern media and they can reach this incredible swath of people. And so we're seeing the effect. And the effect of that in our daily lives is concerning. But just draw a couple of scenarios, a, a could happen scenario. What happens if disinformation goes out right before an election and there's doubt put in the minds of the electorate about a certain candidate? And then that's proven to be absolutely wrong the day after the election. But we go into the election with that flawed mental process and and dangerous things could happen. And of course, as we've seen after the last presidential election, the doubt after the event did what we see happen fairly. And of course, enough people will have differing views on that, that suddenly the legitimacy of the entire election from both sides of the political spectrum is at least imperfect. So Stan, I want to I want to pivot a little bit to uh, a healthcare topic. You know, there are so many people who believe that, you know, a pan, they couldn't, it can't, pandemics can't happen here. We're in the midst of this horrible Omicron spike, which is really on the, on the wave of a Delta spike or a Delta wave. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the fact that actually, whether it's Bill Gates on, uh, on a TED talk or even the federal government actually did a pretty good job at predicting it um, and but not preparing for it. Yeah. In fact, if you think about COVID-19, it's just the latest in the kind of assault on public health that comes 
you know, in a, in a uh, large society. And of course, the more connected society is, the easier it is for transmission of things like that to occur. So this was nothing new, entirely predictable. Would it be COVID-19? Obviously, we didn't know that exactly, but we knew similar threats would come. In fact, Crimson Contagion, a Department of Health and Human Services a set of exercises in 2019 had a scenario that started with a viral infection that came from an American traveler who had been in China, coming back to Chicago, getting picked up at the airport by his son. The traveler doesn't feel very good, so the son takes him home, puts him to bed. The son then goes as planned to a rock concert, and eventually 500,000 Americans are infected and die. And it's, it's incredibly prescient. And in fact, the findings from that exercise identified a number of the shortcomings in our preparedness, although we were considered to be the most prepared nation on earth in terms of equipment and different things and coordination processes, identified 76 pages of things that needed to be improved. And of course, when COVID-19 actually arrived in the United States late in 2019, we were not ready. And those places where we were ready, in many cases, we didn't execute a plan that we knew was necessary. There was a body of experience in public health that says what you have to do in the event of a pandemic. We did some of them. We did some of them haphazardly, and we did some almost not at all. And so as a consequence, I would argue we've had a much worse performance against a defeatable pandemic than we should have. And we even had the advantage of the fastest vaccine production in the history of man. So that, that actually should have put us in a great position. So this is, this is disturbing because if we can't do well against this kind of a threat, a relatively speaking manageable pandemic, what happens if it was massively more lethal? or transmitted even more easily. We did a war game back when I was in the Pentagon on uh, a smallpox outbreak. And of course, it was incredibly instructive for people like me who are not scientists, just how dangerous that would be because how fast it could be transmitted around the world before it was symptomatic in many people. So if we don't take this kind of thing seriously, then we are almost by definition vulnerable. You know, on your risk control factors, 10 factors that you had, had mentioned, there were a couple there. there. There were some that were kind of straightforward and easy to understand. There were a couple I was a little surprised about. One was diversity and another one was was bias. Can you talk about that? those as factors, why you included those among the 10? I sure can. And, and I like to because we do misunderstand those. We use those terms. Typically, when we talk about diversity now, we talk about having a range of genders or ages or races or sexes in an organization. And I would argue that's not the kind of diversity we're thinking about. We're thinking about diversity of perspectives. You can get a number of people who have different sexes and backgrounds and whatnot, but if they all have the same history, they went to the same schools, they, they're in the same industry, you're not going to get a broad range of perspectives. And as an example, we used the Bay of Pigs crisis in 1961. And President Kennedy, brand new in office, is handing the plan that had been put together by the Central Intelligence Agency to overthrow Fidel Castro using exiled uh, Cubans. And the plan wasn't very good. 
it, it wasn't very realistic and it wasn't very well coordinated. But the new president brings together people to look over the plan and has to make a decision under the pressure of time. And so he, he gets some inputs. He asked the joint chiefs of staff to look at it, but they sort of defer. They don't want to, it's a CIA plan. They didn't want to grade the CIA's homework. So he didn't, they didn't provide him the necessary perspective of the military professionals on the plan. So everybody sort of muddled along. They execute the plan. And of course, we know historically it was an absolute disaster and an embarrassment. And Kennedy learned some important lessons. A study was done after the fact, which a, a scientist named Irving Janis coined the term groupthink and identified some of the challenges when you don't have diversity of perspectives and you allow the dynamics of a group to be conducted in a way that you can go in a direction that actually the wisdom of the room knows not to be the right answer. 18 months later, Kennedy got a second shot to do a similar kind of thing with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he changes the processes. He ensures that he gets different kinds of perspectives in the room, and then he changes processes so that what happens is instead of everybody forced into a, a very narrow set of courses of action, he forces them to tease out different options. On day one of the crisis, had they had to act, they all would have agreed to do a, an invasion of Cuba. And yet a much more nuanced approach is finally reached, which allows a quarantine, a form of blockade that prevents nuclear Armageddon. And you could argue we might be here today because they were able to get a slightly better approach to this, to a really naughty problem. Uh, Stan, you did a, I thought it was an interesting call out. I mean, perhaps because I'm from Boston, calling out Boston's COVID response with uh, Marty Walsh. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, there's so much negative news about COVID and we've lost control of the narrative, even though we've got the an incredible vaccine production and therapeutic production. We're still bungling testing, which as David knows, is a passion of mine because it's part of resilience is assuming that you're going to have to test and contain and 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 get that data. Um, but there are some there are some positive stories in response to COVID, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened in Boston and how the mayor sort of created a different narrative. Yeah, if you think about it. The summary of our failure to COVID-19 is not a scientific failure. It's not a medical failure. It's a political failure, a leadership failure. And what we saw in Boston and we got to see up close was, was really interesting. COVID started to arrive in the United States and New York was hit worst first. And up in Boston, Mayor Marty Walsh had been in office for six years. And he is a union organizer and then a state uh, representative. And then he's elected uh, to mayor. And in 2015, he goes through the big snowmageddon where they had 10 weeks of these incredible snow uh, accumulations, which meant he had to make some really hard decisions, prioritizing things, not just spending money, but how to get schools open and whatnot. And he had to make decisions in crisis that were not all popular, but they were decisive. And I would argue that was very instructive for the mayor when COVID-19 started to arrive. And it all happens early in 2020 when he goes to, to uh, meet a financial contact that he knows an acquaintance to talk about the economy in Boston. And when he goes into this meeting, the individual won't shake his hand. 
And that that's a real uh, departure from their normal time together. And it was because of concerns of COVID-19. So for the next 45 minutes, they talked about the likely impact of COVID-19, not just medically, but socially, economically on the city. And, and Mayor Walsh walks out absolutely convinced that he has to learn more. So he makes some other calls to experts and he, he comes away with the conclusion that Boston's about to get hit with a tsunami of a pandemic that they are not really ready for. Now, one of the officers on his staff was a reservist. Uh, one of the staffers on the mayor's staff is a reservist in the army. And he had been on active duty recently before that. And he came back to the mayor and he said, you need to call Stan McChrystal because he's got a team of people that, that deal with similar problems. So the mayor called me. I'd never met Mayor Walsh. I'd lived in Boston years ago, but never met the mayor. And he says, I have a feeling that we are not ready for this. We have plans for all kinds of contingencies, but we're not ready for this. So we sent a team up there of four people and they stayed about six months. But what they got to witness from Mayor Walsh was really impressive. First, the mayor knew several things were critical. First was communication, communication from the mayor in clear terms on tough decisions that had to be made, a narrative that he could align the city around. And interestingly, he talked about, we've got to protect the citizens of Boston, particularly the most vulnerable. And he used to use his widowed mother as an example. She still lives in South Boston. So he would describe, we have to take care of people like my mother so she can get health care, get groceries and all, and be protected in this pandemic environment. Now, to do that, he also had to run the city differently during the crisis. He knew he had to pull together communication across the different agencies, but not just the agencies, but also non-traditional stakeholders, the, the many colleges, uh, hospitals, different entities, non-governmental organizations. He had to create this wider community of stakeholders that operated on a daily basis, passing information and getting things done. So he creates the crisis response forum. Every morning at eight o'clock, they get together, but they don't really get together because it's COVID. So you can't physically get together. So they're all connected virtually. Now, remember, a lot of them are about my age, so they don't know how to use Zoom or anything. So they've got teenage kids leaning over them, telling them how to do it. And they're building relationships they never had. Every day, they're focused on outcomes. They go through what the situation is, what needs to be done, uh, and then what the outcomes have to be and who's responsible for those outcomes. And at the end of every day's meeting, Marty Walsh would say, you know, here's what we got to do. Now let's kick some ass today. And it created this accountability and this rhythm and this focus and this shared idea of what the mission was. And Boston's response was extraordinarily effective. Now, you never dodge a pandemic completely. But what you do is you make governance a strength, not a vulnerability. So, David, I'd suggest a lightning round of uh, risk-informed advice from uh, the general on a couple of topics. You okay with that? Let's do it. Lightning strikes twice, and as long as it doesn't hit over here in Brookline. Uh, General McChrystal, in your status as a as a as a as a former battlefield commander, uh, how do we prepare for the risk of Putin in the Ukraine? Yeah, I think the first thing is think about our vulnerabilities. Our vulnerability right now is the weakness of our alliance. It's not the number of planes and all we have. So what we've got to do is first strengthen our alliance primarily with the Western Europeans. 
who are held a bit hostage by oil and gas from Russia, but also they're held a little bit entranced by Putin's decisiveness, almost Adolf Hitler-like. And so we have got to strengthen that alliance. We've got to ensure we've got the capability to, to provide an effective military response. But also we've got to signal that we have the political unity and the political functionality in the U.S. government so that Vladimir Putin doesn't think that we will dog paddle in circles arguing amongst ourselves if he does something decisive. He's got to believe that if he touches the United States, we will act in a unified, effective way in whatever is best for our interests. And we, we don't need to signal exactly what that is, but we need to signal that we are a unified entity when it comes to international actions. That, I think, reduces our vulnerability tremendously. We've got massive risk right now as a country with COVID from your perch at the McChrystal Group and as you're in the ivory tower of Yale. What's your advice to the president? Yeah, it's he has tried hard to signal to to align the narrative on this. And unfortunately, when President Biden took over, there already was a big fissure in this. I think we've got to continue to to just hammer on the narrative. I think things like vaccinations are a case of responsibility. It's not individual welfare that it's about. It's about responsibility to other people. We've got to, we've got to hit that. And I think we've got to make some very difficult decisions about mandates and whatnot, which I think are protecting, protecting those who are more vulnerable. And so I, I, uh, I don't pretend that this is an easy one that any leader can with a stroke of a pen or a nod of their head can change. But I think it's something he's got to stay leaning into. I think we've gotten some fantastic insights on risk. I, I particularly was was struck, uh, Stan, on the point about resilience and the, the biggest risk is yourself. Uh, I think we could all we should all embrace that, uh, particularly in the midst of a global pandemic. Stan, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Well, great. Well, that wraps up Care Talk for the year, John. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And thank you for listening.